Hey, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me today, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first three verses there as we look at our hope of growing up in our salvation. Peter wrote this book to a group of persecuted Christians who were people just like you and me in many ways, scattered across several provinces of northern Turkey at the time in the first century. They were living in a pre-Christian world. The gospel had not yet engaged all over the world, and they were some of the first believers in northern Turkey. They were not well received, and people did not like their newfound faith. And these Christians were pretty severely persecuted, and Peter wrote them this book to give them encouragement. And out of this book, as we are learning, it gives us a hope in a hopeless world. For you and I are living in a world that is much torn by strife and war and hardship of every kind. Disease seems to be on the increase, famine, hardships, pestilence everywhere. More people now afraid than any other time. And this is a time when Christians are to shine. And that's why Peter wrote this book, to be an encouragement to them, living hope in a hopeless world. Peter starts out in this letter in chapter 1, by telling them and reminding them, you were chosen for this. You are God's people, set apart for God, sprinkled to be obedient to Jesus Christ, covered in his blood. You've been given a living hope, an inheritance that'll never perish, spoil, or fade. God is your shield and your defense. You have a great joy because you know that when all of this is gone, your salvation will be waiting for you. You also know that you are living not for yourselves, but for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, with minds that are alert, he said, I want you to give yourself fully to this grace and be a holy people, set apart for God and all that he has for you to do. You call on a father who judges each work impartially. Live here as strangers, foreigners in a foreign land. You feel the way you do because this is not your home. Heaven is your home. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. You were chosen before the creation of the world. You have, Christ has been revealed to you. You believe and have your hope in God. You've purified yourselves by the word. You're growing in a sincere love for each other. You have come to an eternal hope. You will not fade like the grass. And in light of all of this, Peter said in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. A word that's as relevant and powerful today as when it was first penned. A word that brought hope and encouragement to a group of Christians who, just like us, had never seen Jesus. Their faith was rooted in a word that had been preached to them and the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon them. And when they faced hardship, they didn't complain because they learned that you were using even this to help them to grow up in their salvation. The kind of growth that all of us need so that we're not always grumbling and complaining, feeling offended and abused and mistreated, but we will understand to see things from God's perspective and to know the hope that only Christ can bring. And we thank you, God, for all that you're going to show us today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Renee Zelliger is a, an actress whose name you may recognize. If not, you might recognize her face if you saw in some of the movies she's been in. I haven't seen any of these movies. I can't speak for how good or bad they are. But she starred in films like Bridget Jones' Diary, Chicago, Cinderella Man, Jerry Maguire. She was a very popular actress, making about four films a year, when suddenly, about seven years ago, she disappeared. No public appearances, no movies, no spotlight, no nothing. Recently, in an interview in the British version of Vogue magazine, she told what happened over these last seven years. And what she said was what caught my attention. She said, I was fatigued and wasn't taking the time I needed between projects, and it caught up with me. I got sick of the sound of my own voice. It was time to go away and grow up a bit. To have exchanges with people on a human level and be seen and heard and not be defined by this image that precedes me when I walk into a room. It was time to go away and grow up a bit. And so she went away to focus on the things that were shaping her life. She went away to get in touch with the relationships in her life that mattered most. She went away to get rid of some things in her life that were all-consuming, and she decided to pursue some things that had real value. She said, it was time for me to grow up. You know, when I read portions of that interview, I thought, that's a good example for all of us. Because we all need to grow up, not just physically, not just emotionally, but we need to grow up especially in our relationship with God. That's what Peter was writing to remind these persecuted Christians of, to grow up in their salvation and to realize the hope that would be theirs in that growth. And Peter wrote to remind them of the living hope that they had in a hopeless world, a world that was filled with heartaches and trials and injustice and even persecution. In fact, earlier in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, he had called them to praise God for who they were and what Christ was doing in them and through them. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Many Christians think the shielding of God is to give us an easy life. No harm will come to us, no difficulties, no trials, no heartaches. It's just not true. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God is in it. There's a purpose in all these things we go through. And he said, remember, you've been given new birth into a living hope. Yes, you're facing extreme trials as you live out your faith in Jesus, but God is using these very things to help grow you up and give you a hope. So don't miss the opportunity to grow up and mature in this salvation you've been given. And in light of all that God is and all that God has done, therefore, he said, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. 
like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word grow up is the word, the concept of increase. You've started out as Christians. Now, do you see God increasing in your life? Don't stay stuck. Grow up and increase in your faith and in your effectiveness, in your hunger for God, Peter would tell them, in your desire for holiness, in your obedience to God's word, in the reality of your redemption. Grow up in your understanding of this salvation that you've been given and the hope that it brings in Christ as you grow. And you've tasted God's goodness. Now grow up in the full meaning and expression of it. And Peter reminds these believers that those who have tasted the Lord's goodness can have the hope of growing up in their salvation. But how do we do it? How do we grow? Peter said, by getting rid of everything that hinders our growth and by craving everything that nourishes it. We grow up in our salvation by getting rid of everything that hinders our growth in Christ. Peter said in verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. We all need to grow up. One of the things that helped me to grow when I was a kid was joining the Boy Scouts. Because I had Boy Scout leaders who lived the values that scouting taught. Values like these. Being trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And these leaders lived out those values, especially when they were wearing that scout uniform. And it made a marked impression on me as a boy. And they taught us that when you put on that uniform, you're identifying with something greater than yourself. And I can assure you, in our little New England village, I had never been exposed to the concept of being responsible for something greater than yourself. They taught us that how we acted was a direct reflection on how we saw our identity as a scout and the organization itself. And that there were certain attitudes and behaviors that we were to lay aside when we wore that uniform because it would have a direct reflection on scouting itself. It was a healthy thing for me to learn. But there's something bigger than me And when I put that on, there's certain behaviors that become inappropriate. I don't think Peter was ever a Boy Scout, but he understood the same truth about becoming a Christian. And Peter understood that when you put on Christ, you take on a new identity greater than yourself. You died. Now Jesus lives. And how we act is a direct reflection on him. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, Peter said. Therefore, there are certain attitudes and behaviors that must be stripped off because they're no longer appropriate for the one who wears the name of Jesus. Peter told these believers to get rid of the old attributes and responses of our sinful self 
and put on the newness of Christ. That's why he said in verse 1, Therefore, in light of all that you are now in Christ, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Rid yourselves is a phrase that means lay it aside or strip it off, get rid of it. Get rid of the attitudes, the responses, and the behaviors that dominated your life before you were a Christian. Remember, these believers were being marginalized. They were being ridiculed. They were being persecuted by people who couldn't accept their newfound faith in Jesus. Now, I don't know how you would respond if people were confiscating your property, kidnapping your children, killing your family and your friends. That's what these people were experiencing. Now, if that were happening to me, I can tell you in my old self, I would naturally put on malice and hatred of, uh, of every kind. In fact, I don't even need persecution to sometimes struggle with those things. Just have somebody malign you or say something untruthful about you or deny you of something you felt you deserved and watch how people respond. Without Jesus, there's no way I could respond rightly, and neither could you, and neither could these people. Peter said you need to rid yourselves of all that stuff you used to do, the way the world does it. Andy said you need to respond like Jesus did. A little later on in chapter 2, Peter's going to write a lot more about suffering. 1 Peter 2, verse 19, he said, It's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. What Peter's describing to these people is instead of complaining or thinking something strange has happened to you, as he's going to address in chapter 4, instead of blaming God or suddenly think that now you're getting a raw deal, be conscious of God and understand that in your suffering, in your trials, in the diseases, in the financial downturns, in the relational strife, and all the other things you go through, God is working in those things to grow you up and reveal more of his Son. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, I have a lot to learn in this. You can't do what I do as publicly as we do it and think everybody's going to like you. They don't. There's people that hate me. And they're not afraid to express some of those opinions. And sometimes people come to me and say, man, did you hear what so-and-so said about you? Or you ought to see what so-and-so wrote about you. Or you ought to see what so-and-so said to us about you. What are you going to do about it? And I tell them nothing. I'm not going to do anything about it. I don't have to. 
What I need to do is entrust myself to him who judges justly. Because you know what? If I'm not careful, I could be going after people while I'm doing the same thing myself to someone else. So I need to entrust myself the way Jesus did. He didn't retaliate. He made no threats. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter goes on to describe that the way that you rid yourself of things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander is not to focus on necessarily getting rid of these things, although you have to do that, but it's to replace them with praise because you realize that God is now working in these things that used to irritate you, in the jealousies and the prides and all the other things. God's working in these things to flesh them out of your life. And don't be surprised he's doing it. A little later on in chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, he said in verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. How about verse 19? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It's the same message the writer of Hebrews gave to a group, another group of Jewish believer, background believers who are suffering. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, by the way, the great cloud of witnesses that the Hebrews writer said in chapter 11 who had gone through so much for their faith in Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is not asking us to do anything he hasn't done. In fact, Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he is not now willing to do in us. Jesus is wanting to respond to the trials and the injustice and the maligning and the slander and all those things that are thrown at us. Jesus is wanting to respond in us now as he always has. How did Jesus endure all the pain, the rejection, and injustice he faced? He stayed focused on the joy that all that suffering would accomplish. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And you and I are to focus on the fact that God is in these trials, whatever their source, to produce in us an eternal joy and a glory that outweighs them all, Paul said. So, fix your eyes on Jesus. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul taught almost everywhere he went. 
You got to put off the old so that Jesus can put on the new. You have clothed yourselves with Christ. Do you remember in the book of Ephesians, the book of applied Christianity? After three chapters, the first three chapters telling us what a real Christian is. A Christian is a person who now has Christ living in them. Then in chapter 4 begins the application. This is how real Christians live. And look what Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles, the nations, the pagan nations do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They don't know God. They don't know what God's up to. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him, accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You're different, he's telling you. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. People, there's a phenomenon in Christianity today. I don't understand it. I honestly don't. I mean, we all sin. We know that. But when you see people intentionally engaging in sin and foul language and drunkenness and revelry of all kinds and they're bragging about it on social media I, I don't understand what's happening within the Christian community and the people who do that I don't get it those are the very things we're not to be proud of we're to be getting rid of those things Paul went on to say in Colossians 3, verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Kill these kind of things out of your life. Starve them out. Do whatever you got to do to be rid of these. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices, and to put on the new self, which is being created in knowledge and the image of its creators. Renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. People, your enemies and those who hate you those who do not like our lifestyle or just don't like us. When they malign us or say evil against us or hurt our feelings or don't treat us as we think we should deserve, they expect us to respond with malice or envy or hypocrisy. They expect that. That's what the world does. And when you don't respond that way, 
they notice. They may not get it, but they notice. They may interpret it originally as weakness. But it is really Christ's strength. Jesus is shining in your life. His glory is being revealed, and you are growing. And when you see that growth in your life, it fills you with hope, the hope of growing in your salvation, because you realize, I'm not doing this. This is not me. Jesus is doing this. And he's given me in this moment the capacity to respond like him. In fact, he is responding this way. And you are growing up in your salvation. Not only getting rid of all that hinders, but Peter said we grow in our salvation by craving everything that nourishes our growth in Christ. He said in chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I mentioned last week we have a new baby in our family, little Eden Ruth, two weeks old yesterday. First time I held her, she honored me with her first poop. <laughs> it's amazing how much stuff is stored inside that little body. <laughs> and those newborn diapers aren't very big. They don't have big capacity. I'm sitting on the sofa holding this little girl, and all of a sudden, I'm smelling something really awful. And then I'm feeling something really warm. And I looked down, man, and that diaper had exploded, and it was on the front of me. So I gave her to Mom. <laughs> Second time I held her, I put her up like this on my shoulder. I'm patting her back. You know what she did, man, Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> so I gave her to Mom. The third time I held her, she was hungry. So I'm sitting there talking to her, and she's just, she's rooting around everywhere looking for something that I ain't got. In fact, I looked down, I said, honey, Bumpa's worthless. So I gave her to mom. And as soon as I did, man, she latched on with a passion. New babies crave milk. No one teaches them to crave it. God built it into them. They innately desire that. And they go after it. Naturally. It ain't like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Brussels sprouts is an acquired taste. No kid ever eats a Brussels sprout and says, hmm, that's pretty good. I think I'll have another bowl of those. I love veggies. I can't stand Brussels sprouts. My daughter, Kimmy, was cooking some the other day, and she, I said, what are you cooking? Brussels sprouts. I said, oh, man, I'm sorry for you. She said, no, you need to try these, Dad. These are good. I said, no, I had those. I ain't, I mean, it's been years, but I ain't doing it. No, 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 you need, you need to take, these are really good. Do you like cabbage? I said, yeah, I like cabbage. Oh, you'll like these. I said, all right. I stuck one in my mouth. I took two bites. I gagged, man. I spit it in the sink. I said, these are just as horrible as I remember. 
Brussels sprouts are an acquired taste. You do not want them naturally. And thank, thankfully, you don't need them to grow. Peter said, just like a newborn baby, a Christian naturally craves pure spiritual milk. God built it into us. It's the normal response. A natural desire for what nourishes us and makes us grow. Peter said in verse 2, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. That word crave is the word desire, and interestingly, it's a word that indicates a natural desire from within. You naturally, normally crave this. It's a God-given desire. It's the hunger of the Spirit of God in you to drink of the pure spiritual milk that feeds the Spirit of God alive in you. Spiritual milk, as we saw in the last message at the end of chapter 1, is the Word of God, where we meet Jesus where we grow in him. This is not primarily a handbook. This is where you meet and grow in your relationship with Jesus. But it's more than just the word. That pure spiritual milk is everything that nourishes us and helps us to grow. So it's the word of God for sure, but it's also prayer, it is fellowship, it is worship, it is service, and interestingly, it is suffering. Nourishes us and helps us to grow. Now that you've tasted God's goodness for yourselves, Peter said, now that you've tasted God for yourself, you've experienced him for yourself, even in the midst of your trials, now you crave more of him because you know him now to be real. You've tasted. He's good. By the way, that craving the pure spiritual milk is the same words Paul used when he was describing why we should give our lives as living sacrifices to God. Remember in Romans 12, verse 1? Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that God has done, just like Peter said, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Here it comes. This is your true and proper worship. This is your reasonable worship. This is your spiritual worship. All of those translating the same words that Peter was using about craving pure spiritual milk. When Paul was writing to the Romans, he said, look, in light of everything God's done, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and proper worship. This is the reasonable, rational, spiritual response, the only reasonable response to make to the mercies of God that have come to bear fruit in your life. It's the natural response. Peter said, it's the reasonable, natural, spiritual response to crave this pure spiritual milk of God that's going to help you to grow as a Christian. So latch on to those things with a passion. Crave them. If we don't have that hunger to grow up in our salvation, there's something spiritually wrong in us. When a newborn baby doesn't want to feed, mama knows something's wrong. Maybe we aren't really saved. Maybe we're living in sin and grieving and quenching the Spirit's work in us. Or maybe we just have a greater hunger for things other than God. (coughs) 
God is always ready to give us more of himself than we are willing to receive. God is always ready to give us more of himself than we are ready to receive. Do you remember what God told the people of Israel? Psalm 81. I am the Lord your God, verse 10, who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him, and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Open your mouth and I would fill it. But Israel wouldn't. People are very often not hungry for God because their hunger is being satisfied by so many other things. Why do good parents not give their kids candy treats an hour before dinner? Because they know it will dull their appetite and they won't be hungry for what they really need, the good stuff that will nourish them. Do kids who eat candy an hour before dinner like it? Of course they do. That's why they do it. But if that's all they ate over time, they're going to get sick and weak. And what happens over time, if you're raised on too much junk food, it dulls your appetite until good food has no appeal at all. The same thing happens spiritually when we let other things take priority over our desire for Jesus. Do you remember in Luke 14, Jesus told a parable about how his father invited all Israel to a banquet. I've got a hometown buffet here of spiritual nourishment set out for you, and I'm inviting you to come. But they didn't come because they all had other things they were more interested in. Remember Luke 14, verse 16? A certain man was preparing a great, great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, well, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. 
You see, Jesus told this parable to help Israel to understand God's invited you to come to a banquet of feasting in relationship with him. But you've all got excuses. You've got all these other things filling your life. You don't have time to come, nor do you have the desire. You've lost your hunger for God. John Piper once wrote in his book, A Hunger for God, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. People, it isn't that the good things that God gives are bad. They're not. That's why he gives them. It's just that you can never allow the good thing God gives to replace the hunger for him himself. Open wide your mouth and I would fill it. Crave pure spiritual milk. People growing up in their salvation do that. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I think it was about 12 years or so ago, Tom Hanks made a movie that I did see called Castaway. It was the story of a FedEx employee on an air flight delivering packages that went down in a crash. He was the only one that survived. He remained unfound on a deserted island for years. I think it was five or six years or more. And one of the things that kept him going was a package that he held on to that he was going to faithfully deliver. A few years ago in Super Bowl 37, FedEx ran a commercial. You know one of those fun Super Bowl commercials? They ran a commercial spoofing that movie that was made with FedEx at the center of it. And in the commercial, they showed a bedraggled guy, a FedEx employee who had obviously spent years on a desert island, uh, coming up to a suburban home with a package in his hand, all beat up and torn. When the lady comes to the door, he explains that he spent five years on a deserted island, and during that whole time, he said he kept the package in order to deliver it to her, and she simply says, thank you. But he's curious about what's in the package and the one he's been protecting all these years, so he says to her in the commercial, if I may ask, What's in that package after all? She opens it up and shows it, him the contents saying, oh, nothing really, just a satellite telephone, a global positioning device, a compass, a water purifier, and some seeds. <laughs> Everything he needed. 
but he never opened it up. Peter in his second letter said, God has given us everything we need. But so rarely do we ever open it up. I mean really open it up. To the word, to prayer, to fellowship, to service. And even sometimes to suffering. But if we would, Peter said, you're going to grow up. You're going to grow up in your salvation. And when you see that growth in you, it's going to give you hope because you'll know that Jesus is alive in you. And you'll know that he is getting more and more of your life because you're now seeing it through his eyes. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Get rid of everything that stands in the way of your becoming like Jesus. It's not appropriate anymore for you to respond in those ways or to harbor those attitudes. And crave everything that helps you to grow more like him. And when you do, you'll have a living hope. Peter closes out his second letter to these people like this in 2 Peter 3, verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Lord, I have a lot to learn about this. I have a lot to learn about this. But I'm honestly learning to thank you for the times where I get stretched, where I don't like it, where normally I would respond with envy or jealousy or pride or hatred or malice or hypocrisy. And you're allowing me in that moment to realize that you're in this and you're going to use this to help me grow. That's what you're doing for all of us. So Lord, I want to thank you for loving us enough that through Peter you would send a message like this to a group of really hurting Christians. And the hope they got from that is the hope that's been given to us, a living hope, the hope of growing in our salvation. And we thank you for that hope today in Jesus' name. Amen.